Welcome to episode 33 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. James Cohn here. We are behind the old rock and roll in James's house. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. James, it's been a month since we talked on the microphone. It what has. have you been watching? Man, the other day I watched this Netflix documentary about the Hulk Hogan gawker case. Oh yeah? But it, it's it goes into other stuff besides that. Just like people with lots of money like influencing the media and politics and um it was like it was very interesting. So it's not really a wrestling documentary. No, 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 not at all. And actually I went into it kind of siding with Hogan, I guess, or just like thinking that Gawker should have got shut down and, you know, paid $140 million or whatever it was for releasing his sex tape. But then after I watched, I was complete opposite viewpoint. So it it's really interesting. It goes into a lot of details about the case. Well, as far as the Hogan-Gawker feud goes, I think there's only heels in that situation. By all accounts, anyone who's ever worked with him in wrestling like has nothing really positive to say. He's like a megalomaniac monster, yeah, an opportunist. There's a part in the documentary where he's talking about how like how big his penis is. Are they? They're quoting him like on the Howard Stern show, bragging about the sex tape and how large his penis was. And his defense is that he was talking about it as Hulk Hogan, not Terry Bollea. So it's this weird, like, kayfabe, like, who's the actual real person on trial here? And I like that Hogan is a kayfabe dick size. <laughs> yeah, he was like, he even says, like, Terry Bollea doesn't have a 10-inch penis. Hulk Hogan does. It's like, what is going on? Doesn't he use racial expletives in the sex tape, too? It's like why he's not in the Hall of Fame right now. Yeah, and you know what? Like, I have a Hulk Hogan shirt, and I think I might just have to burn it. I did not, <laughs> I did not realize the stuff he said was as nasty as it was. Yeah, I've never watched the tape or anything. It's but, vile. But Gawker has a, like, bad history of, like, outing people who don't want to be out of the closet and, like... Well, Basically gossiping about these like things that are like sell clicks very easily, but aren't necessarily always ethical. Yeah, so that's kind of sort of a spoiler, but basically everyone was wondering like, how is Hogan? He's was in bad financial shape, so they're like, how does he have all the money to pursue this case? Mm-hmm. And they found that this billionaire Silicon Valley guy who was outed by Gawker, this guy, his last name is Teal, that he was actually funding this to take down Gawker. And that's where it gets into the murky, like, wait, so this billionaire decided to legally pursue this so that he could take down this whole media empire because he didn't like it. And that goes into questions like, so what's to stop a billionaire from just buying a newspaper he doesn't like or just buying the New York Times? You know, it's kind of a murky... And like you said, like, Gawker is not... They're not saints. Like, it just sounds oh, like all heels. Yeah, but I ended up actually respecting Gawker more after watching it. So yeah, so I, I would recommend it. It's a really interesting view. So it's called Nobody Speak, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Trials of a Free Press. How is the documentary like itself? Is it just like kind of a... No, it's actually really it's like well, well put done. together. It's really well put together. Okay. Yeah. If you're interested in any of 
that like it's really eye-opening yeah I, I usually stay away from gawker in general but i do know people who read it like really closely well and i didn't realize that they actually broke a lot of like real news mm-hmm. like they were the first ones to bring up the bill cosby rape allegations yeah. and like all these other cases so they were a legitimate news outlet they also exposed a lot of like preachers who like got away with like molesting people and stuff like that yeah. too so i don't know they, they seem like they go too far in some cases but yeah they're they're kind of bullies a but little bit it's also like freedom of speech being shut down because someone has enough money to like and that but yeah. it's like really nasty speech but it's still <laughs> you know we still have the freedom of press and freedom of speech so yeah. it gets into all those issues and it's it's really enlightening i enjoyed it Anything else special from the last few weeks? I saw they come at night. Oh, it comes at night. It comes at night. Sorry. Um, the new Treyward Schultz movie. Yeah, not a huge fan of it. I I don't know. It, it wasn't as I guess frightening or as much of a horror movie as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, the advertising definitely made it look like kind of a tense like post-apocalyptic horror film. Maybe like there was going to be like zombies or a monster lurking in the woods that never showed up. Yeah. I, I did think it was really well acted and well shot and everything. I just really loved his first movie, Cretia, like so much. And this was not on that same wavelength. See, I've, I'm on the opposite end of that argument. I mean, last episode with Brittany, I kind of gushed about this movie already. But mm-hmm. um, I think my main point about it was that I think it captures that feeling of like being up late at night after like keeping yourself busy all day and kind of putting all your anxieties to the side. And then like whenever you're grieving over something or really dreading something happening that you can't prevent and like those anxieties keep you up at night i've never felt a movie build that tension as well as this one does and something it does that's really cool to me is uh those nightmare sequences where that dread does kind of terrorize the main kid they go into these like constrictive aspect ratios where everything feels really cramped because the screen like literally gets smaller and you can just feel it like kind of choking you and then in the final 10 minutes, I mean, I won't spoil what happens, but when the hammer finally does fall and bad things do really start to happen in real life, it gets the really same, claustrophobic. Yeah, the same aspect ratio starts closing in on you and the screen gets dark. I really like was kind of like choked by how tight everything felt. Not spoiling anything, but I will say the last like 15 minutes is pretty effing good. And that's what people <laughs> were disappointed by. They felt like it kind of ended with no resolution to the story. And I thought that was kind of a silly complaint. No, that that was some, I think it was just more high expectations because of how in love I was with Cretia. And one final movie, I can't really recommend, but it was just so bizarre. I have to mention it <laughs> is this movie called Men and Chicken. Oh, with, I wanted to see that with Mods Mikkelsen, who I love, like one of my favorite actors. It is like really weird. I'm still kind of wrestling with like, did I enjoy that movie? We'll save not- that for uh, the conversation later, because that was a movie from last year. And uh, on today's episode, we're talking about movies from 2016 that we liked. Well, I'll bring it up. I can't say if I liked it necessarily, but I'll go into why. Okay. There's a lot going on with that movie that's <laughs> pretty messed up. But uh, anyway, so what about you? Have you seen anything recently? Uh, I saw two movies this weekend that were very exciting but not in the ways I expected them to be. One was this film called Band-Aid. The star of it, her name's Zoe Lister-Jones. She also produced, wrote, and directed it. And she hired an entirely female crew behind the camera for it. I've been doing that like 52 films by women thing. And I don't think I've run into one movie that has like an all-women all crew yet. So that was kind of a, a rarity. The movie and the advertising looked like it was this kind of like slightly dark, but kind of cutesy indie rom-com. That's, uh, I saw the trailer and it looked, like, yeah, like a cute It's anything but movie. cute. Really? It's like 
this really dark look at this marriage that's falling apart. Um, these two characters fight every time they're in a room alone together, but they start a band where they start putting their fights as lyrics into songs, and they basically facilitate like group therapy just between the two of them, of, like singing out their fights, like. Songs are like, I love you, but I don't want to fuck you. And like, uh, why don't you do the dishes more often? And don't ask me if you look fat in that dress. Uh, It's like these like small daily arguments they have and they start putting them in these punk songs. So it has this sort of exciting sing street kind of quality to it where you like watch a band come together. But because they're arguing all the time, it has more like failure than sing street has. Where Mm -hmm. like they'll do these like like stop and starts where like you can tell they're really into the band and then... The fighting kind of breaks them up for a bit and they get back together. But most of it has kind of a um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf quality where there is some really dark, deep-seated problems that are not just like surface bickering. Like they have some really traumatic stuff they just will not deal with and won't talk about until it bubbles to the surface and it's it gets really fucked up. There's something a lot more complicated and nuanced in the movie than the advertising makes it look. This than is just not... him like singing about doing the dishes. Yeah, this right? is not a rom-com. It's not cutesy indie like Sundance kind of filmmaking. It's something really effective. I, I liked it way more than I thought I would. Especially for a film that has like Fred Armisen making goofy like Andy Kaufman kind of faces as their drummer <laughs> and stuff like that. It's, it's really good. And the other one I saw this weekend in the theater was called Icaros, A Vision. This woman... Basically, in real life, she was a visual artist and she was diagnosed with cancer. And she went to Peru to do ayahuasca, like, tripping journeys into her mind to, like, sort of come to terms with the fact that she was going to die of cancer. Uh, And she came back from the trip, basically, I think she was an Argentinian director. She came back from the trip, like, convinced that she had to make a movie about the experience. And she filmed this movie on the set in Peru at the exact religious retreat where she took the ayahuasca. So all the people in the um, movie, except for the tourists that are that are there to take the drugs, are people who actually work at this like religious retreat. You would think a movie about like someone going into this like colonial space where they're like going to these like shaman would be kind of exploitative, but it's really interesting how it turns it around. On those people, like, it makes fun of the characters who are treating it like a hotel resort and, like, not taking the, like, religious aspects of the ceremony seriously. And the more the movie goes along, the character who's there as the director's surrogate, she pretty much already comes to terms with their fear of death. And she actually takes the time there to connect with one of the shaman and help him through an oncoming grief that he has to deal with. But because he's like in a service position, he basically helps all these like European and American tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one's like really paying attention to his needs. And she kind of like turns it around where she's helping him through his journey. And the movie has this like sort of meditative tone to it where it's very quiet and still. And it's just like sounds of the jungle throughout all the daytime scenes. And then at night when they take ayahuasca, they go into these like dreamy, trippy sequences that have everything from like television static collage to video game imagery to like MRI scans and just like really weird images. I honestly don't know how I feel about it on the whole. The real life story of it's very interesting. The woman who made it died before post production was completed. Oh, wow. And she was conducting a lot of the uh, decisions from like her deathbed as the movie was like in the Damn. editing process. So there's this like kind of like deep sadness to it, but there's also like this meditative piece 
uh, kind of like Heart of a Dog, that Laurie Anderson movie mm-hmm. we watched last year. So I'm still kind of struggling with how I feel about it on the whole. I think I need to see it again, but it's definitely very interesting and not something that's gotten a lot of attention. So if, if you like that kind of like quiet, meditative, intense imagery, kind of small scale movies, it's definitely worth a look. I don't know exactly how much I liked it, but I liked it. I've had friends that have done the ayahuasca thing and it's like interesting to me, but also like that story within the story for like helping the shaman and the real life behind that all sounds really interesting. I want to check that one out. Well, um, today we're going to be talking about some movies that we kind of underserved when we did our like best of the year list last year. 2017 is halfway over, but yeah. there's still some movies from last year we didn't get to by the time we made our best of 2016 lists. Uh, so today we're going to kind of go over the best movies from last year we didn't see until after the year was over. Right. Uh, and before we get into that, we're going to look into a druggy parody of a Disney film that's <laughs> popular classic. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Now, Allegro expresses joy in an upbeat tempo. For example, But Presto is just a bit faster and usually a little bit darker in tone. For example, Now, as you can see, both Allegro and Presto are quite different. They're both speedy, but one is a little lighter and one is much faster. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. For this episode, James made me watch a film called Allegro Non Tropo. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to compare it to Fantasia because it's very similar in the sense of like, it's an Italian film that takes classical pieces of music and this animator, Bruno Bazzetto, puts, you know, images to it. And then there's like scenes in between to kind of bring everything together. But it's not like Fantasia in a lot of ways. The animation's a little more crude. It's a little more sexualized. It's a lot more political. And it's really just a strange odd movie and when i first saw it like i i saw without these scenes kind of connecting everything i just saw the animated yeah the portions the american cut is shorter and doesn't have the live action inner scenes but those inner scenes like actually are some of the best scenes in the movie and i do like after seeing the full version i think it really does work as a whole piece but i think it's it's something that I definitely like appreciate. I don't know if it's like, you know, I'm crazy about it, but I think it's like a really strange, notable film worth discussing, basically. What what were your impressions of it? Well, it's not just like a Italian like carbon copy of Fantasia, it's like deliberately parodying. Fantasia. Yeah, it's like a satire of Fantasia. Basically. And it's got like a seventies like druggy political cartoon kind of feel to it. Uh, yeah, it kind of reminded me of Fritz the Cat. Yeah, I was, I was thinking bit. like early Robert Crumb for sure. Um, also, Fantastic Planet, that French film. Uh, it's got kind of that same like trippy vibe to it. But the animation uh, from Bozzetto, who does do political satire, that was like his main thing. He's like a satirical cartoonist. Um, I don't think his animation is quite as interesting as either Fantastic Planet or Fantasia. This movie charms only in that it is very flippant and it's irreverent and it makes fun of things in this kind of like nothing matters yeah everything's absurd yeah it's absurd it's really zany and like parts of it are very slapstick 
too. So it definitely doesn't take itself as seriously as you would expect, you know, a movie that takes these great classical pieces and puts like images to it. It, it kind of undermines the whole idea of even doing that in the first place. Yeah, I, I think they're specifically doing this thing where they put slapstick comedy in an operatic setting. Because the movie is set in an opera house, the live action bits. Um, so you have this conductor orchestrating this grand musical piece from like Stravinsky and Vivaldi and all these like composers whose names I should know, but I really don't know the differences between those people. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, that those Bugs Bunny shorts where he would like go into the opera house and conduct or right. uh, what's opera doc, I think is one of them. I really like that clash of like lowbrow humor in a highbrow setting. Yeah, he has like a his orchestra is just made of like old women mm-hmm. who spend a lot of their time just knitting. Uh, and there's really no point to them all being old women in the orchestra, except that it's just weird. Yeah, and in the beginning, he like herds them like cattle. To the opera house and... One of the old ladies comments to the woman sitting next to her. She's like, I told them I wouldn't do nude scenes. Yeah. Uh, It's like, no one wants you to do nude scenes. (laughs) It's just like weird stuff. Well, and also the animator, too, at the beginning of the film is a slave. He's like chained up. And then they bring him to the opera house and basically force him. But he's chained up the way that someone in a Looney Tunes bit would be. Like, he's like against the wall in like the old shackles in like a 13th century dungeon. And he gets the shackles on him kind of is a slapstick thing where he has the jelly legs Mm -hmm. just very absurd and funny so my like initial thought watching it was just that i wish i had seen fantasia right before i had watched this because i don't know if i've ever watched fantasia all the way through i mean that movie came out in the early 40s this one came out in the mid 70s so by the time this came out that movie had like been a long-standing tradition it was one of disney's like biggest prestige pieces like it's a really fancy disney cartoon well and the the film actually from the get-go makes fun of that like they even say like oh you think this film was done before it was done by what do they call him prisney prisney and pisney they also like kind of make fun of the self-importance of it they're like um this film, Allegro non Tropo, is a film destined to become immortal, which is kind of like the kind of self-aggrandizing Disney's always done as well. Which they have employed like some of the greatest animators of all time, but they kind of do that like pro wrestling thing where they like beef up their self-importance and their legacy yeah. like in real time. Yeah, they even say in the beginning like we're going to put a visual form to this <laughs> classical music, which is totally what Fantasia was doing, and it's like brilliant. But yeah, it's very like highbrow, self-important, and I kind of like that this movie subverted the whole idea of doing something so like self-aggrandizing in the first place. Yeah, and and like you said, that that framing device in the in the orchestra with the conductor, there's a movie producer, and the animator is on stage animating in real time at like this drawing board as fast as he can. And sometimes the drawings come to life in the opera house. Yeah, this kind of Roger Rabbit kind of way where they're like interacting with the real life people uh, yeah. but much cruder it's not like a robert zemeckis like special effects showcase it's kind of like yeah a- like I, I liked one part where one of his animated guys is on a piece of paper and then the piece of paper catches fire and he's slowly getting enveloped by the flames like begging for his life uh little visual gags like that and then there's like I don't know, somebody in a gorilla suit. Or like, uh, when someone falls through the stage, they have that Looney Tunes cut out of their exact body on the ground where they went through the floor. Yeah. Uh, It's very silly. It's got druggy kind of nonchalance to it. Where like, 
they're not trying as hard as they could, but that's kind of the charm of it. Is that they're just kind of goofing around? With yeah, who this... doesn't want to see like a monkey like tap dancing <laughs> while it's like snowing inside? It's just like craziness. And even the Italian version, which we got on archive.org, it is like public domain. We just had to like put subtitles to it through a yeah. third party source. This um, is definitely the most effort I've put into <laughs> finding a movie in a, in a long time. But uh, even Italian movies, like this film in its original Italian form seems like kind of off because Italian productions always do this like dubbing of the dialogue after the fact. So, like, I know this just from watching Jalo films, but, like, watching people's mouths sync up to the dialogue is right. always off. <laughs> so the movie has kind of, like, a haphazard, like, sloppy, let's put on a show kind of, like, vibe to it. Which is really funny for something that's going to attack something as lofty as Fantasia, which is considered, like, an all-time classic. But I really liked that aspect of it the most, was watching the production behind the scenes where they're, like... Oh, it's time to get the Vivaldi piece ready. We got everybody in order, and like there's just chaos spilling <laughs> right. all around, and they can't get their shit together in time. We do need to talk about the animated pieces themselves. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's like a big part of the film. And while I agree, like, I did like the other stuff a lot, I will say, like, the first few animated vignettes or whatever are kind of mediocre, but they do, I think, get better as the film goes along. And for me, that kind of started with. And this is a kind of a direct play on a Fantasia scene with like the evolution of the dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and their extinction. But this version is much more like bizarre and they're like nightmarish creatures. And then man shows up and destroys everything. Like this film has a very like anti-human. Anti-capitalism. Yeah. Anti-consumerism. Anti-authoritarian. Yeah. Definitely anti-fascism. Well, that sequence starts with the conductor basically taking the only food or drink that they've given the animator. A Coke. A Coca-Cola bottle, like ripping it out of his hand and throwing it and making him go back to work. The uh, Coke bottle lands from the live action into this animated landscape, and the actual liquid from the Coke bubbles up kind of like oil, so it kind of makes Coke look gross. And then out of the oil... This creature forms, but he starts like... Forming into other creatures that get bigger and more grotesque. And then eventually they're basically just dinosaurs marching through time to this kind of like death march. And as time goes on, yeah, nature starts to turn into these big buildings. And then these like evil corporate fat cat faces start showing up at the buildings and laughing at them. And then the faces crumble. So like even the modern time that comes up that we're living in now, that's like impermanent while this like nasty creature that is like, I don't know, I guess the animals that inhabit this planet keeps marching on beyond whatever time frame we're living in now. And that's also like the vignette before where they're living in this like barren landscape and a guy builds a house. So all his neighbors build, build a house and then he builds a skyscraper and they all build skyscrapers. And soon the whole world is like taken over by these like structures. So it definitely has that kind of anti, I guess not anti human necessarily, but just seeing humans as just another species that will just die out like anything else yeah yeah and i think i think part of what you're saying earlier about them getting better as they go along is like part of the parody aspect of this i think the first couple vignettes and even the dinosaur one even though it's one of the better ones is like this 
they start as more close parodies to actual Fantasia pieces. Mm-hmm. I think maybe towards the end, Bozzetto sort of lets loose and does his own thing a little more. That might be just trying to get the audience into like a false sense of security. Like, oh, okay, I see what this is going to be. And then it actually ends up being like a pretty blatant social commentary yeah but okay but like the first piece is like this like satyr walking around and hitting on basically hot bathing women um and they keep rejecting him and and he tries to like put on makeup or make himself look more attractive and by the end he's just lonely and then you see like the landscape itself is a woman's body there's really not much going on in that one it's not very interesting to me you know, like, hippie culture was very, like, anti-corporate and stuff like that, but it's also, like, still very macho in a way that not a lot of people talk about. Like, for all the free love and stuff, like, that movement was still very, like, you know, heteronormative, sort of, like, regular sex politics kind of mm-hmm. vibe. So, like, the sex humor in that bit is not as amusing to me as, like, say, the dinosaur bit, but uh, more to it. My favorite piece in here is the one with the cat that's in the Oh, novel. yeah. Uh, there's this cat who's in this like broken building. It looks like it's been ravaged by war. The cat starts to imagine the apartments that used to be in the building before it was destroyed. And the movie starts overlaying these live action images, but through color filters of the lives that used to be in the apartment. And there's these like kind of oil slick rainbow sheen to all the objects that the cat is sort of like imagining in the space. Uh, and it's this really sad, touching piece uh, about like loss and memory. That's basically how I first found out about this film. I was lit, so I was listening to a uh, podcast, and they were talking about fan theories for different shows or media. And one of the ones was about Garfield. And uh, apparently, in the whole run of Garfield, there was like a week where the animator had just Garfield alone in the house with no explanation, like everyone else was gone. And the whole week that happened, it was like really depressing. And then the next week when the cartoon ran, it was just back to normal. And so people have this theory of like, that's actually, like Garfield's just really alone and everything is a fantasy. Oh, really? Because they, um, they have Garfield without Garfield. So it's just John alone talking to himself. Yeah, and that's, really and that's sad another too. like side of that. But uh, so basically in the podcast, he was talking about this scene from Allegro Non Tropo mm-hmm. and how good it was. And so I kind of sought that out. And when I saw it, dude, like my cat ran away, you know, last year and just that scene made me cry. Yeah, it was like really sad. really sad. And just seeing him like the cat alone, like imagining humans around and getting really happy. And then you realize like he's just alone in a band. And then the bulldozer comes a wrecking ball and just knocks the whole thing down and then the cat disappears which too. is more about like heartless like corporate stuff too right that's about like industry moving on and there's like all these living like memories mm-hmm. in a place that just get demolished but besides being sincere it's also just like one of the better animated segments in the movie like it's a lot more intricate and like experimental where i feel like the straight disney parody ones felt like they were just kind of like you know, just like goofing around cartoony. Right. I, I thought by far this was the highlight and like probably one of my favorite animated pieces. Like a little vignette. Yeah, yeah vignette that I've ever seen. And yeah. that, that really is the main thing that I wanted you to see in the yeah. film. And I think the final 10 minutes is the only time it ever like reaches that again. Um, it started started goes into this like Don Hertzfeld thing. Uh, do you remember the Rejected cartoons? 
where in the final 10 minutes of those, the world starts collapsing in on itself and like all the paper gets rustled and then like the whole thing just sort of falls apart. Yeah. The last 10 minutes of Allegro and Tropo do kind of the same deal where it's like basically multiple endings. Yeah. They're like the we film. need a, we need a new finale. Yeah. And then there's this just mouth breather like guy that's watching these different endings and it's basically like making, making fun of the audience. Right. Like this is you. And it's funny too. Cause during that segment, the composer goes away. Like, he gets stuck under the stage. And this is when Bozzetto is set free to do whatever he wants. And he starts animating all these weird sequences about, like, nuclear war and, like, different things like that. So it's kind of like he's finally freeing himself from the parody of Fantasia. And he's free to just do his own Bozzetto stuff, like, whatever his original mm-hmm. artwork is like. And I really like that free-for-all in the last, like, five minutes of just, like, experimental shorts. And they're much shorter than the musical pieces. They're, like, 20 to 30 seconds. Uh, and it, it really reminded me a lot of that Don Hertzfeld stuff. And one other of the animated pieces I wanted to touch on just real quick was the snake and Adam and Eve. That scene starts out so bizarre. You remember with the... Well, basically, like, the snake tempts her with the apple. Um, Eve rejects it, and the snake eats it himself. And then, like, becomes a modern man with, like, a suit and a fedora and he's like drinking alcohol and getting poked with needles and just money pouring all over but even before that there's clay yeah this clay clay animation thing and he's really just bizarre like grotesque like a hand on top of a foot and weird little like sort of human like creatures and it was just like really strange that was definitely like I think visually one of the most memorable parts of the film. Yeah, as and well. it kind of doesn't really go anywhere. It's like an experiment for its own sake, but it looks cool. And then you kind of watch it like stumble around, and it's like bad at being alive, <laughs> and they just like start over and make like a new form. That part's really interesting, but it's kind of just like for its own sake. Well, no, well, that's it, God that's... like trying to create man, and he right. like fucks up a few times before he gets it right. And I think those are like the best parts when Bazzetto's just kind of playing around with form and medium, and just kind of doing his own thing. The only thing that kind of confused me, because there's not a lot of information about this movie, is the title is a musical term, which means basically like fast but not too fast. So mm-hmm. it's about like playing a classical piece a little faster in tempo than usual, but not so fast that it's like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I was trying to like get a handle on what that means in, in the context of the movie. My only guess is that it's about like a sex joke, you know, like saying that a woman is fast. Mean, meaning that they're fast to bed. I didn't know if right. it was like kind of like a, a sleazy sex joke about like well, being a little too loose. I could see that. I the way I took it was just thinking about the broader like because like you say he was a political cartoonist and it mm-hmm. has all this political stuff going on in it. I kind of took that to mean like human progress. Like mm-hmm. yeah, we should progress, evolve, you know, push ourselves as like a species, but not so far that we destroy the planet. Yeah. And everything on it. Like so I kinda took it as this like broad political statement that he was trying to get at. Well, I like that better than the sleazy sex joke, so I'm gonna go with that one. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. It, it, interesting. The movie title. the movie could justify either reading because it True. does both. Like it has like kind of a macho, like sleazy, like check out this tree made of tits. Watch the tits float away. Isn't yeah. that funny? <laughs> but it also has like these like anti imperialist kind of ideologies. Right. Too. I, that's what I really appreciated about it. It was like it had substance, but it also was just didn't take itself too seriously and has moments of just like absurdity. If you do want to watch it, it is free on archive.org. You just have to download it and then open it in a video player with a separately downloaded 
subtitle file, which is not that hard to pull off, but it is a couple steps when we're used to just like clicking let's go on Netflix and right. watching whatever at the click of a button. But it, I, I think it's worth the watch. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, go on YouTube and just watch the cat segment by itself. It's like three to five minutes and it's beautiful and sad and very touching in a way yeah, that if I... that piques your interest and in, I would watch the rest of it because there are... Some really great moments in there. And it couldn't hurt to watch Fantasia first. <laughs> yeah, no, now I want to go back and watch Fantasia. Yeah. Totally. Maybe that'll be a whole other episode. We'll watch both versions Comparing. of that Comparing. Yeah. yeah. If you ever want to have an adult relationship with a woman, like if you want to have sex with a woman's vagina, you need to be comfortable with the fact that the vagina menstruates and just say menstruation it's not a big deal so start saying it now menstruation no yes menstruation menstruation jamie no you don't have to you're saying it like you're scared don't say it like you're scared say it like it's normal menstruation 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 not bad julian menstruation you can say it right now i'm sorry oh menstruation just keep eye contact with me. What are, who are you looking at? Menstruation. Menstruation. Yeah, that's right. Menstruation. Charlie, you're quiet. Menstruation? Menstruation? No, not like a question. Menstruation. Menstruation. Now, everybody say it together. Menstruation. Like gentle, happy, but casual. And... Menstruation. And now it's time for our future conversation. The year is halfway over, believe it or not. And we are going to be talking about the best movies we saw since last year for 2016. We did our best of the year lists in January. And there's always stuff you don't get to in time because we're not paid to do this. This is all our free time. Not yet. Not yet. And never. No, um, <laughs> uh, joining us for this half is our other co-host, Brittany Lombus. All three hosts mm-hmm. in one we haven't episode. done this since last February. Right. That's the last time I think I saw you, too. That's a long That's ass crazy. time. That's too long. Y'all need to start going to like the amusement park together or... Oh, the one at City Park? Baton Rouge. I can't or fit yeah. in there. We could go to jazz. Oh, no. I can't fit in the <laughs> oh, no. Go to the abandoned jazz land. We could just go sit on those like Little Miss Muffets or something in the uh, Storyland part. The, la- the Ladybug roller coaster, I think, adults can get in. They just fixed like it, that. too. They just updated mm. it. Oh, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, we're Looking going to the amusement to park after this. <laughs> All right, episode over. <laughs> So, I'm just going to ask y'all at the top, what is the best movie of 2016 you saw after you made your list of the best of the year? I would say The Fits. The Fits? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I know that was on the top of uh, CeCe's list, That was CeCe's favorite, and those are my top five or ten for sure. And I saw it a couple months after, and I fucking loved it, and it would have definitely been in my top five. The sequence towards the end where the music comes in and she starts floating off the ground was like maybe my favorite scene of 2016. I know we were talking about at the top of the episode Carisha from last year and I think this was a good like companion piece to that one where it's like a first time filmmaker just sort of like busting out with like some of the craziest images in a very controlled very centralized intimate story. Yeah and also just Like, it's a coming-of-age story, but it's done in such a weird, like, don't quite know what's going on. Like, I love the ambiguity of it. And also, it was just, like, a beautiful movie. Like, the way it was shot, too. I I really loved it. That was probably my number one from last year that I missed. And Trey Edward Schultz, who did Crescia, already has had his follow-up hit the theaters 
Where's Honor Rose Homer's follow-up to the Fitz? I want that as soon as possible. I think it will be very good when it happens. Brittany, but... what's your favorite movie from last year that you saw after last year? I know what I should say, but I'm just going to say what's coming from my heart. Zootopia? Oh, I love that movie. It was so good. Yeah. I don't know. I just got so emotional over it. There's a scene where it just constantly like stays in my head every time I see animals or people being assholes. And it's the Nick, who's the, the sort of sly fox that's really a fox in the movie. He's a little boy and it's a flashback and he's going to like a Cub Scout meeting and they put a muzzle on him and they throw him outside and he cries and it's the saddest thing in the world. But other than that, um, the movie was just really fun. I've watched it like four times in a row once it hit Netflix. Uh, it was sort of a, a bonding moment for me and my dog. <laughs> so like Zootopia is our thing. But it was just really, really smart to where you can see that kids will grasp onto a lot of, you know, the whole people are just going to fucking be different and you just deal with it and you move on. I think that and one was up there for like Kubo for me, like for the most times so I cried during oh the movie. Oh God. Like Disney yeah. just has this thing where like they can say the most. <laughs> what are they doing? It's the most basic, almost bullshit even. Like you can be whatever you want, but the way they like phrase it, like <laughs> makes me cry like a baby. Because it's animals. Yeah. I feel like if it was like people, even if it was like the little Pixar people, I really wouldn't have cared. I think it was really smart that they did animals. Like, I like that there's no central metaphor. Like it's not a movie about racism or sexism or any other right. kind of marginalization it's about like all of them Just together except like not being a dick yeah right. in, in a lot of ways it reminded me of inside out oh, in the sense yeah. of like, like it's really like about a big topic and mm-hmm. sometimes when you're talking about something that's so broad you can kind of miss the mark but both those films i think like hit it a hundred percent like mm-hmm. knocked it out the park I honestly like it a little more than Inside Out because I think what both those movies do that's interesting is like world building and like Inside Out, the way it like maps out how your mind and your emotions work and it builds this like kind of world of like complex um, landscapes that represent different things inside your mind. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting, but it's got kind of like a, what's it called? Like bubble trouble, like that like 80s video game with the bubbles. Uh, it's got kind of like a, kind of a flat um, bust a move maybe is what I'm thinking of, but it's got kind of like a flat visual aspect to it. Where Zootopia, I felt like had this really intricate system of like how all these like giant animals and how all these little animals, mm-hmm. different worlds connect and watching them switch scales going from community to community was very like complexly interesting, like a visual way. It was more open almost like I feel like like inside out, you just kind of felt like trapped, like everything exists within like this body where Zootopia is just like. Yeah. Well, and but that Everything. goes to like the different topics. Like one's about your inner emotional mm-hmm. kind, of, and then the other is like about the broad the world yeah. in general. So it makes sense that one yeah. would feel more confined. They yeah. work with each other. Yeah, Zootopia is about like a lot of topics. Like it's mm-hmm. about like different kinds of power structures. Yeah. Where like Inside Out is more about coming to terms with like one metaphor. They're both very good. I don't mean to like pin them against each other, but <laughs> I was are like you doing this. Well, I don't know. I'm being a monster. <laughs> no, but okay. I was really into Zootopia. I, I think yeah, I, liked I really it. Liked it was just a too. surprise. Like I really didn't think I was gonna like it at all, and then it just kind of like oh, I fucking love it. I don't know why I underestimate animated movies. Like because most of Inside Out. Yeah, I was, I was like, oh, this is gonna be garbage, and. You're just like crying right. halfway through. Same thing with this one. It's because like, of the minions. <laughs> I, think, I never saw that. Well, they're all gar- garbage. So I just think every time I see an animated film, I'm like, oh, it's going to be like that minion crap. And it isn't. 
I have like a bias against 3D uh, CG cartoons. Like I don't like the look of them as much. So I, I am usually surprised when they're actually good. I really um, want to get a Judy Bunny stuffed animal. They have them at the <laughs> Disney store. So yeah. Uh, anyone they, goes to Disney store. Furries are very into it. So I'm sure they'll, oh, they'll be fuck. for sale forever. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're going to keep it alive for you. Um. Oh, Jesus. I didn't even think about that. So... The movie I would single out as like the best one from last year that I saw after the fact uh, mm-hmm. actually came to the theater here in January after I had already made my list. It just had one of those like slow distribution models. I might have ranked this higher than The Neon Demon, which was my number one for last oh. year. Uh, it's called 20th Century Women. It's the latest film from Mike Mills. Uh, it's about this sort of boarding house in California in the late 70s. So it's this weird time for punk when it's starting to switch over from like weird artsy East Coast stuff to this like angry West Coast hardcore vibe. And this kid is coming of age in this house where he's mostly surrounded by women. And his mother is asking her boarders to basically be his like, make him understand women and, be- and how to become a man at this like weird coming of age time in his life. And Mike Mills does this really beautiful job of integrating these like still images and sort of these long theoretical pieces about the history of time and like the history of the century and the movie sort of stops and starts by jumping back in time and showing you like the large picture and the whole frame of the universe and then going back into these like very intimate uh familial dealings and i was just absolutely stunned when i saw this film and i immediately went home and watched his movie before it which was more about his father which is very good as well but uh 20th century women was like this like mind-blowing experience for me i don't know if you've seen that one yet no man Uh, sounds like you're about to like bust through the wall with like joy for this you're super excited about it i I, how did i I watch it like heard of i mean i know you mentioned it before but like well it's got Elle fanning in it and she was in the neon demon last Mm -hmm. year as well she's so Uh, great annette benning is the mother and she is this is like a career high performance for her she's so good in this movie um greta gerwig who i always love plays like a young punk billy crudup is the only other man in the house and he plays this kind of like quiet, soulful type who like kind of keeps to himself and mm. does manly things, but he's not like overly macho. Uh, <laughs> a soulful man. And it's one of those movies that could easily be this like melodrama about all these people living in a house together. But Mike Mills makes it so personal and like insular and specific to his own life and probably his own relationship with his mother that it's something just much more expansive than that. Like it's just a beautiful film altogether. Um I've just mentioned it a couple times, so I might as well just open the floor to this. Uh, how'd y'all feel about The Neon Demon, which was the movie that actually was my number one last year? Mm, yeah. So good. It wouldn't have made my top ten, but I I enjoyed it. Visually, I thought it was really impressive. The story didn't quite connect with me by the end, but I don't know. I, I think liked the last it. 20 minutes are some of the strongest parts of the movie. When it yeah. stops being like a slow, trickle, like weird once they eat her right basically yeah let's just yeah yeah the last 20 minutes are like when the uh, violence promised in the title like sort of comes into effect and it like suddenly becomes a horror movie instead of an art piece is kind of where i was going but again there's still an hour of a lot of just kind of meandering but really like beautiful shots like yeah i don't know like the last 20 minutes basically didn't save the whole rest of the movie for me but i could see how it would for other people because it is really solid mm-hmm. at the end. I think it's a good middle ground between Drive and Only God Forgives, which I did not like Only God Forgives, mm-hmm. but I love Drive. And I feel like this movie takes different aspects from both. We got like the pop music and like the neon lights yeah. from Drive and then like the weird that's all that's needed. philosophical <laughs> uh, 
like jokes from Only God Forgives, where it's like this dark sense of humor about violence. Um, and I think it like kind of finds a good middle ground between those two things. It's hard to sort of like, I don't know, like like you were saying, like for like the first freaking hour of the movie, like I had no idea what was going on, but I think I like that, that I just didn't get it. And it was confusing and mysterious. I want to like mention that it really reminded me of Suspiria, like mm-hmm. the plot line of it, where it's like this sort of like young, innocent girl going to like, you know, be a ballerina or be a model. And they just like hit this like weird ass occult world and it gets super fucked up. See, I actually, a movie I would compare it to from this year would be Personal Shopper, which I <laughs> actually really enjoyed. I don't know if you, did you catch that one? Mm. I know Brandon Yeah, we saw talked it. about no. it in our French Fest episode. Does a Personal Shopper get murdered? She, basically, Kristen Stewart is like I know a, that happens in real life. She like shops for this celebrity, like fashion designer lady. But there's like weird stuff with like ghosts and it, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything, but. <laughs> They're both like artsy fashion movies that bring in like horror genre mm-hmm. elements, yeah. but not enough to make it a genre film. Like it's still would... like a weird artsy art piece. Yeah. Um, I, I personally love the Neon Demon. I liked Personal Shopper, but yeah. I could see how that could be flipped pretty easily depending on your like aesthetic taste. I want to see that. That sounds cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, freaking Neon Demon. Weird. It was, it was weird. It was fucking gory. And they had some necrophilia in it. And that doesn't <laughs> happen very often. And it was... Oh, God. I think that just, like... It's a very, like, super disgusting scene. But it's, it's really gonna... sexy, too. It's honestly. weird. <laughs> yeah. Where, but it's like, I feel like that's gonna be, like, you know, 20 years from now, it's gonna be like, oh, just like, blah, blah, blah. The necrophilia scene in Neon Demon. You know, people are gonna... Yeah, they're going to talk about that scene and talk about the very last part. Yeah. Eyeballs, yeah. Eyeball vomit. But I don't want to underplay like how good Elle Fanning is in the movie. Like She does this sort of subtle thing where she finds power in her like love of herself. And her like narcissism becomes this like evil power. And I think she yeah. plays it quietly, but it's noteworthy. Like I think she's very good in the movie. What, do you think that was trying to be like, you know, one, if you're narcissistic... Because once she starts, like, kind of, you know, like, filling herself, that's whenever she gets eaten by all the other models. So, in a way, it almost seems like, are we supposed to think, oh, like, we shouldn't be narcissistic assholes, like, bad shit happens. Or, she wasn't really, she was just kind of like, I don't hate myself that much, you know, (laughs) and I think I'm doing okay. Like, she wasn't, like, super, like, like an asshole about it, you know? Yeah. And she was almost punished for it. I just see her as kind of, like, basically starting out as very naive, coming into this, like situation where there's all these people trying to like feed off of her and and then eventually she kind of comes into her own and then people literally like are jealous so they just want to eat her and like take her beauty and her her youth or whatever i think she plays naive a little bit like i think she knows how much power she wields just by looking the way she does like when she comes in a room she has like a magnetism um and the movie is kind of playfully joking about that the idea of someone having that special something like the it girl the je ne sais quoi yeah Uh, i think the movie's kind of joking about like how that's not even a real thing like people just sort of attach that to people and she's not necessarily any more beautiful than all the beautiful models that are surrounding her um it's just that she's the girl of the moment and there's like this like energy on her that Mm -hmm. like you said everyone wants to feed on and absorb um i think it's kind of like a subtle comedy even though it's really gross uh, it's like in a humorous way, like especially with the models just kind of like talking to each other about, you know, how they're sort of jealous of her and everything. What I would like to see is what happens after they like ate her. 
if they would get younger. <laughs> the, because I, I think really the cycle tell. would continue, basically. Someone like, they'd new. be young for a moment, but then someone else is going to come along. Yeah. You just got to keep doing it. Ugh, keep eating that'd people. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Any other good horror movies from last year that y'all saw after the fact? Uh, yeah, um, Boo and Medea Halloween. <laughs> oh, that's a good one? <laughs> no. I, I wrote that down just because I did catch it, and I'm seen a lot of Medea movies now and it's definitely <laughs> one of the worst I have. I've seen too many. I don't even want to like count. When I've ridiculous. heard this one is about like the value of beating your children and like That's a central message oh to the movie. <laughs> like sometimes you just got to beat those kids into shape, you know? How much actual horror horror content is in the film? <laughs> Not much. No. It's a just bunch the of bullshit. Children beating is pretty fucking scary. There is like more weed smoking than I thought. You get pretty stoned in there. But no, like, Halloween jump scares or anything? or Nah, man. It's real bad. <laughs> I put it on here because I was going to say that was one of the worst movies from last year that I caught oh. this year. So, the, <laughs> you know, total opposite of the point of this episode, but it, it was worth mentioning. Yeah. Now, I, I did write down a few that, basically, they wouldn't have made the top ten, but I really enjoyed them. First one was Dirty Grandpa. I liked that. Mm-hmm. I really liked that. I had no business liking it as much as I did. Brittany, you like Dirty Grandpa? Yes. Why are all three of us positive on this horrible, <laughs> nasty <laughs> film? All of those like sort of like jackass movies, or like you, you, you feel like you should just be like, God, this is fucking garbage. I think you're thinking of Bad Grandpa. All of them. Wait, no, wait, what's is a Dirty Grandpa? Dirty Grandpa is Robert De Niro and Zac Efron. Okay, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. Bad Grandpa is the one where Johnny Knoxville dresses like, and an it was old funny. Man. I haven't I seen that. I didn't see that. I want it's to. So so no. stupid funny. It's just, why titles. there's so many nasty grandpa movies. <laughs> right. No, I think uh. on the, the other episode we talked about, it, I actually called it Bad Grandpa and you had to correct me. <laughs> yeah, it's it a hard like, title to get straight. Oh. It's just like a really raunchy, like uh, spring break they, sort of thing. They go on a road trip. It's uh, making me horribly uncomfortable now. And Zach Zach Efron has to so get gross. Robert De Niro laid with no. uh, yeah, Aubrey Plaza. It's oh so my God. gross. Yeah, it's <laughs> oh so gross. And she just plays like a skank, and he just plays like a dirty old man. Yeah, oh, and he really actually God. like gives it his all. It's a good Robert De Niro performance, I guess. Like I he's quite a dirty. Old he's man. not phoning it in, basically. Yeah, he usually like ever since the um, movies with Ben Stiller, he's been kind of like coasting. So it's really <laughs> weird. The parents, yeah, the Fockers, yeah. So That's it's really super. interesting to see him give his all and like really dedicate himself to a role. For like the dumbest, filthiest, yeah, it's very most bro-minded ground. comedy. Wow. But I, at the end of the day, with the comedy, like basically just judge it on how much I laughed, and mm-hmm. I laughed throughout the entire thing. And I like that, even though it's bro-minded, it gives Aubrey Plaza and um, this guy, uh, uh, his last name is Boyer Chapman. He's on that on that show Unreal. He plays a gay character in the film, and they have another female friend. So you have these like two nasty dudes like going to Florida <laughs> to get laid, and then you have this like other contingent of like women and a gay man like mm-hmm. sort of like balancing them out a little bit. Even though the the movie ultimately is like a gross like bro fest. Uh, Aubrey Plaza does get to see, steal a lot of scenes uh, just being like her own nasty self. And she's really good when she's in that like feral mode. Yeah, <laughs> feral, feral mode. I like that. <laughs> and then just real quick, uh, I did see Bridget Jones's 
baby. I just recently, within the past couple months, got into the Bridget Jones series. Welcome. And I fucking love it. <laughs> I really like every single one of those movies. And this one was not an exception. I hated the trailer to this film. Right? I thought it was going to be terrible. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> So enjoyable, It's dude. about her not knowing which of the two guys from the first movie is the father of her child. Is that correct? It's Colin Firth and somebody well, else. Well, not no. Hugh Grant. Oh, uh, okay. He's, do well, we, do we, wanna, we don't want to spoil. Right. So it's Colin He's Firth and present. somebody else. He's not present there. <laughs> In the film. But yes, Colin Firth and actually Patrick Dempsey. Who par- Patrick Dempsey, I mean, besides modeling for Avon Cologne and posing by old cars is just the most like insane, bizarre male like actor out there that's just like this, you know, like you know, he's like this not like a Brad Pitt, but he's sort of dreamy. A dreamy guy that, mm-hmm. you know, women are like, oh Patrick Dempsey. But he's so weird. Like made of <laughs> honor, like all these weird ass movies he plays mm-hmm. in. The Bridget Jones situation, he was weird as shit in that movie. He was. Actually and he was him. one of my favorite things about the movie too like yeah. it, it's good man you got to get on that bridget it's jones a good train time. i've had a weird uh period recently where like trailers make movies look a lot more commercially minded and like light on their feet than they actually are like this movie looked like very fluffy but from what i remember about the first bridget jones is that there's a lot of like stuff about her alcoholism it's dark yeah. self-worth and things like that <laughs> it's fantastic so i kind of need to see them and there's like some fun like pop culture like it's like references where you know, she's older now, you know, our lovely Jonesy, and she goes to a music festival, mm-hmm. and she's, like, dressed as, like, you know, a 45-year-old woman going to, like, a music <laughs> festival, and she's trying to fit in, and she's like, meets Ed Sheeran in a tent or something, Yo. and she doesn't know who he is. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> So he makes an appearance and he does a song. Does he take his shirt off so he can see all his weird tattoos on his pasty little Ed Sheeran body? No, I didn't know he had tattoos. Google Ed Sheeran shirtless if you can. It's so nope. strange. <laughs> but I'll do right it. now. <laughs> Will it's, it be my background for my phone? <laughs> it's like seeing a bunch of flash art tattoos like oh. on Pillsbury dough. Because he's got that like, kind of pasty, like right. soft body. God, he's so fucking white. Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. <laughs> So what about you, Brittany? Did is there anything else besides um, the ones you mentioned that would have made? Yeah, like, thinking of like stuff that would have made my list: Totally Zootopia, Neon Demon, and then I thought I was gonna hate it, but I loved it. Manchester by the Sea. I liked it. I did like it a lot. I love like I have like a special place in my heart for those like New England movies, and it was fucking depressing as shit. But I thought it was like really smart how it was just like a, a film of flashbacks. Yeah, and mm. you're trying to like piece this story like there's you know this main character who's depressed as fuck losing his mind and you're trying to figure out how he got to that point and it's just like there's this awesome buildup of like flashbacks which kind of like give you the pieces and then you finally find out why he's so fucked up and that's just like sort of one part of the film the other part's like him trying to like bond with his fatherless recently fatherless nephew. nephew so he's trying to like you know kind of work with that relationship while trying to come to terms with what he did and make peace with his situation, which was basically he got fucking drunk and high and left a fire going in the fireplace and his house burned down with his like three kids in it. So it's dark. It's super dark. It is dark, but but it's great. What I thought about the movie watching it was that it actually works really well as like a dark comedy. 
Like, it sounds kind of fucked up saying that right after that detail you just laid down, but I <laughs> yeah. laughed. It's hilarious. I laughed through most of the film. Like, there's a lot of good humor in it. He does, like, like especially, like, whenever women approach him in the bar and stuff, and he kind of, like, just is, like, got this, I uh, really don't give a fuck about anything mm-hmm. look on his face. So that does play in with a lot of the humor. I think what's funny about the movie, too, is that it's about men not knowing how to express emotion and, like, deal with pain. So they just kind of, like, shrug stuff off and, like, joke around and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, all the grief of, like, all the loss, like, crashes right. in on them, and they just, like, can't function anymore. It's okay to cry sometimes. Like, the, the kid will, like, drop a uh, frozen chicken out of the freezer on the floor and just, like, collapse crying all of a sudden. Like, that's the thing that triggers him, hmm. just because he can't do anything right. But really, like, it's because he ha- hasn't been able to deal with, like, his father passing. Right. Like, immediately after the funeral, he's concerned about his band or, like, going to see his girlfriend uh, trying to get lose his virginity or whatever. And Yeah, it's kind of like a macho movie in a mm-hmm. weird way, but it's about how like that macho attitude leaves you unable to properly process it drives you crazy right which happened to all the guys in this movie fun fact i don't know the details of it but it's real because it was on like a real news thing like washington post or something but apparently there's a family that tried to kill their son by using the plot of manchester by the sea (laughs) wow (laughs) right Damn. I want to see a documentary about this. <laughs> right? So it's just sort of like they were just using the, like, the whole pot of the movie to like cover up killing their kid. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's... <laughs> dark. It's very dark. I, <laughs> I don't feel bad for laughing at that movie, though. Like, I think it is genuinely like trying to make you laugh. And I think part of it is like that bro-Boston attitude. Totally, yeah. I mean, they're all like, you know, cracking weird jokes, but like keeping straight faces throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie. And yeah, it's that... Hearing like y'all describe it, attitude. it, and I don't know how y'all feel about this movie, but it kind of reminds me of like a Goodwill Hunting. I mean, that's sort of then that, that it's take the place same. in Boston yeah. as well, mm-hmm. and like men coming to grips with like how to deal with their emotions. And I think it's a less over the top like maudlin kind of movie than Goodwill Hunting. Like Goodwill Hunting feels like Oscar bait in a way that this one doesn't as much. Yeah, and I will say like as much as I think it's funny that, that one scene uh, with Michelle Williams where she like meets him with the baby stroller. Yeah, it's with her like, new family. Yeah, it's Fuck. it's good like thirty t- seconds to like a minute of dialogue, and it just utterly devastated me. Michelle Williams just tears that whole film down in just like a minute of dialogue. It's so good. Damn, I want to check that out. Now. It's it's very good. Yeah. And it's a really pretty movie too. Like, I don't know. The whole like fishing village. You can like smell the sea <laughs> like salt and all that kind of shit. It's nice. But I did like that and then I also like going back to freaking animated movies. Here I go again. Secret Life of Pets. Boo! <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see that it's one. Really I good. That one. Really? I really watched it because there's a tabby cat that's like overweight, and I have a tabby cat that she was overweight, but now she's like she's lost twenty pounds. Yay, Miss hey. Beasley! You're on the road to recovery, girl. Um, it's got a lot of funny people in it, right? Like, yeah, it's got like a lot of like fun voices, but it's cute. It's just like what your pets do when you leave, and it's like this apartment complex with like. You know, all these different dogs and, have, and cats and stuff. And they have their own, like, personalities. And there's, like, this underground group of, like, pets that have been, like, rejected and want to fucking kill all the humans. <laughs> and it's super creepy. They, like, live in the sewers. Um, so it's pretty terrifying. But there's, like, you know, um, this the main character, Dog, lives with his owner. And he's obsessed with her. And he loves her. And then she brings this, like, giant dog back from the pound. And is like, you have a new brother. And they don't get along. And they learn to get along after escaping the 
scary underground pets that want to kill all the human beings that have fucked them over. And it's just really nice. And then all the all the apartment animals that are friends with them so help it, them. You know, like Zootopia and Inside Out, you know, they had like a message, basically. Like, is there a message to this or is it just a like comedy, just a fun family the film? The only kind of message that I can see it having is like whenever an only child gets a brother or a sister and they have to deal with it. Because it was kind of, that's the only, like, thing. Like, I mean, I couldn't relate to it. Besides I'm like, that, who it was gives just, a like, shit? entertaining. It was just a lot of fun because okay. it's, it's, it's animals and what they do when you leave. I mean, when they just sleep and chill, I mean, that's all they do, but. If you look at, like, the top ten, like, grocers of last year, like, the top ten movies that made the most Is money. I think it was on there, but I think all Four of them were on. either franchise starters, so, like, either reboots or sequels, superhero movies, or talking animal kids films. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that one was on there. But it's kind of ridiculous how like those are the three <laughs> things that people still go to the movies for. I think this might be a thing. Like I feel like I have all these things. Like hotel comedies. Mm-hmm. And then animals talking movies. Because <laughs> I really do like Homeward Bound a lot too. Like whoa. <laughs> I don't think you're alone. Because <laughs> <I, laughs> a lot think, of people like it too. Yeah. But yeah, I think those were the main ones. There's still stuff that I haven't seen that I want to see. But those were all the... 2016 films that well, I enjoyed this year. I got a couple more that came out last year but didn't reach New Orleans until like mid-January. Scorsese's Silence. Oh, I still need to see that, dude. Uh, it's this really brutal... It's visually gorgeous because it's like set in Japan and films like Ooh. in these beautiful mountain settings mm, on the coast. Nice. But it's this really brutal piece mm. on faith and trying to spread gospel because that's what Christianity is supposed to do is it's supposed to like prophesize to other people. But everywhere they bring everywhere they bring the gospel in Japanese culture just brings pain to the people because the uh, the empire that's already established there basically just kills anyone who converts to Christianity. So they have to like kind of pray in hiding and hide all religious artifacts. And there's like a punishment for the hubris of thinking that you are fulfilling God's mission and spreading God's will across the world. But everyone you touch with God's light gets brutally murdered. And basically at a certain point you have to come to terms with the fact that it's partly your own vanity and thinking that you're doing an important thing and hurting other people while you're doing it. But the the (laughs) preachers like in the film hold on to their faith anyway. Like they never lose faith in God, but they have to like find some negotiation between like... Practicing that faith and getting other people over to their side, but not hurting people in the process and like knowing when to quit. And the answer somewhat is never like they never quit, but they they can't stop themselves. It's like part of their religion. Uh, It's definitely one of those great like Bergman type like struggles with like the silence of God God, and like uh, what it means to practice this religion that's supposed to save people's souls, but like basically ruins their lives on Earth. Uh, because they're trying to impose a culture on a area of the world that already has its established culture and wants mm-hmm. no part of it. That's some heavy shit, dude. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> Scorsese just is still killing it, man. It took him 10 years to make this, and nobody went to see it in the theater. Like, I think it died. Uh, it came out the same weekend as Monster Trucks, and um, they both bombed. Why. Oh, I was like, <laughs> Monster Trucks is way better. No, they both bombed. Um... And the other movie I saw around the same time that uh, was similarly just as heavy, I actually watched this movie like the week my grandma died of cancer, and it's about this kid, it's called The Monster Calls, it's about this kid whose mother is dying of cancer, and he's having a hard time dealing with it, and this monster visits him at night, it's this giant tree voiced by Liam Neeson. Oh, I 
I saw that preview. Yeah, and the, cool. the monster tells him stories uh, in the past that seem to have nothing to do with his situation. Like, he feels like this monster's going to give him this wisdom about his life. And by the end of the movie, he does. He makes the kid come to a realization and, like, voice this anxiety about death that we don't usually talk about when we're watching a loved one go. And I don't want to ruin what that message is, but uh. it was something that I had been feeling at the time mm. and didn't know how to voice myself. So it was like this really like brutal like viewing experience. Um, it's really like well animated uh, kind of stuff, and it's got this like kind of gloomy British fairy tale kind of aspect to it. Nice. Um, and I really liked it. I, I, I was surprised it was kind of a muted reaction. I love people. when you just find a movie like at the right time yeah. mm-hmm. in your life, like those such a great moment when you're like, yeah, this movie is speaking to me in my present Which is kind situation. of what they're supposed to do, so nice knowing that movies still do what they're meant to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple more quick ones. Um, in the same vein as what I was saying about Manchester by the Sea, how it's about mm-hmm. like men not dealing with their emotions, mm-hmm. there's this great film called Joshi starring Thomas Middleditch and Adam Pally. weird name. And the director, Alex Ross Perry, who did... Queen of Earth. Them and Nick Kroll and Brett Gelman are Sweet. all part of this crew of bros who are in this bachelor party the week before a wedding was supposed to happen, but it's off. And it's off for like this really tragic reason. And they're going to have the bachelor party anyway to kind of cheer up Joshi, who was about to get married. And the tragedy of the situation is weighing on all of them and they all each have their own personal issues they're not dealing with and their way to get through it is just to do mountains of cocaine and drink themselves into oblivion and the more they avoid their problems the more bubbles to the surface to the point where like Brett Gelman is yelling things like it's not okay to be sad um <laughs> and like other people sort of come in late and they're like, oh, hey, we came to just like give you our condolences. We're sorry all this stuff happened to you. And they just see like how coked out and like brutally miserable everyone at this party is. And the party just won't stop. Uh, so you get like kind of an outsider perspective like, man, y'all have gone to some dark places. And they just reject it and kick everyone out who's got like a voice of reason um, and process it through this sort of like broy like emotions are for losers kind of way. We're just going to party until the problem's over. I loved it. I think it's really great. But if you watch the trailer for it, it makes it look like kind of like saying about Band-Aid at the top of this episode. Like it kind of looks like a cutesy like Sundancey rom-com and it's just really not. Or it kind of sounds like it could be like The Hangover or something, you the know. The Sad Hangover. Yeah. <laughs> but it actually deals with, I think, kind of the same level of like stuff that Manchester by the Sea is dealing with. Like mm-hmm. some really deep like feelings of loss that people are just ignoring but this totally. is more of a dark comedy outright. Like, there's a lot of jokes about avoiding your emotions. So that one's highly recommended. I think that yeah. one's on Hulu right now. Oh, sweet. And I think finally, this film Evolution from last year. This is another one I didn't really know how to feel about it the first time I saw it. But it's this slow, atmospheric horror film about this island of boys who are being raised by adult women. Who, they very quickly are becoming paranoid, aren't actually their mothers. And they're like isolated in what starts to look like a science experiment where the women are doing this really dark surgical experiment on the kids. Whoa, Um, that sounds cool. Sweet. And it's got all this like really great imagery, like stuff in specimen jars, um, a lot of underwater imagery of these like bright red starfish clashing with the sort of like murky sea. And then the kid who is sort of our main point of view starts to break away from his mother figure and sort of look into like the dangerous culty kind of stuff the women are doing and he starts finding these 
elaborate ceremonies they're having on the beach at night. And he becomes more and more concerned about what they're actually doing to them. Awesome. There's not a lot of payoff. It's one of those, like movies where there's not a lot of answers to the questions but the atmosphere is so weird uh and so like constraining like you you feel like very tense throughout it so i I think y'all might yeah that sounds right up my alley dude i got some Uh, more movies to watch now yeah Yeah, i love like cult movies i would like to be in one but Mm -hmm. i'm too scared but oh that sounds awesome it kind of sounds like the wicker man sort of or the original wicker man like when you're just like trapped on this island weird crap happening I like it. How scary. Uh, I'd say the difference uh, in The Wicker Man, the guy is asking a lot of questions and he like, mm-hmm. has those like long talks with like Christopher Lee and stuff. Um, in this one, it's pretty dialogue light. Like basically watch this kid like wander into different rooms where he doesn't belong and like peeking behind doors. And Oh, cool. There's not a lot of dialogue. Like, don't watch it late at night where you might like kind of doze off a little bit. Kind of like The Neon Demon. I know you had like a false start when you tried to watch that too yeah. late. Is there anything else from last year? Oh, well, the other day I did watch Man and Chicken. Mods Mikkelsen, one of my favorite actors, but don't know him. It's really freaking weird, and I'm not sure if I like it. Like, I need to watch it again, but <laughs> it's like these two brothers, and one of them's like a chronic masturbator, and they try to rekindle with their family, but they're like a bunch of degenerates that have like sex with the chickens oh, on their no. farm. So there's weird stuff like sex with animals, like chronic (laughs) masturbation. Is it meant to be a comedy or is it meant to be like, they need help? So it's like a Danish comedy. And I think the Danish just have a really fucked up weird sense of humor that it's weird seeing foreign comedies sometimes where you're like, I don't quite get the sense of humor here. And that's how I felt with this one. I'm like, this is just weird. It's not really making me laugh, but I'm like interested to see where it goes. And it kind of has this like Texas... (coughs) Chainsaw <coughs> Massacre vibe when the family gets together, just a bunch of like fuck up, a bunch of chicken fuckers. <laughs> yeah, chicken fuckers, and it's so weird, I've, dude. Like, I already have the image. It's probably not a clean table. I was just reading like on the cover, the box they have like all these glowing reviews, like <laughs> winner of cans, whatever. And I, I'm watching it like my mouth hanging open, like what, like. People thought this was like one of the best comedies of the year. Like the trailer made it look kind of slapstick, farcy. It is yeah. no, it has like it's very, very slapstick, and there are scenes that like are pretty funny. But there's a lot of really messed up sexual stuff in there that kind of made me question the movie as a whole. But I don't know if any of that sounds interesting <laughs> to you, <laughs> then check it out. But uh, Mods Mikkelsen gives a really bizarre. Performance. I, I can't Jeez. say I like really enjoyed it, but it was interesting. You're probably gonna watch it again. You're gonna be like, I freaking love this movie. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the second time it's gonna click. Like, gonna oh, click. the chicken fucking represents it's something different than I thought. It always makes me sad when people like do you know sexual things with animals because just kind of feel bad for them. Oh yeah, <laughs> and also like this guy's just masturbating constantly throughout to the chickens the... or just to no, he's just, just masturbating stuff. There's like a two minute long scene. Where him just masturbating in a like public bathroom oh and on the road trip they have to take breaks so he can go masturbate off in the woods. Like that's and kind of funny, I think. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Kind but of funny. That's the, as much uh, as I can that say. That sounds so interesting. Oh, sweet. Cool. Uh, another uncomfortable comedy <laughs> that I really liked last year, I know y'all saw after the fact, was Clown. That one about the guy who wears a birthday clown suit. Oh I, I really enjoyed that. And then he turns into a demon. <laughs> 
that like the fly eats kids. Yeah, which is awesome. I like whenever kids get injured. Not that I don't like when I don't like it when they do in real life, but like in horror movies, because a lot of times in horror films they don't take it that far yeah, and they, they pull stop. That punch. And then like it's just like nope, we're gonna devour this child in a ball pit. Yeah. Which I got stuck in the fucking McDonald's ball pit when I was little. No, because so- I was too afraid to go down the slide because I thought I saw a snake. And I just kept like getting lost, and then I was like, "Oh God, oh God!" And like some some fireman had to come get me so out of there. So that scene probably <laughs> brought back terrible memories. Hundred percent. I was just like, "Oh God!" I'm like, "You go in the balls," and then I had like a, a very nervous Nelly mom, and she's like, "The drug addicts throw their needles in the ball pit. That, Don't fall in there." I heard that urban legend. <laughs> the urban you legend know. of snakes and like syrin- dirty syringes in the ball pit. I'm just like, "Oh God!" <laughs> I feel like they stopped and having then a those killer clown in there too. I feel like they got rid of those ball pits for, oh, like, they were, safety concerns. I mean, there really <laughs> wasn't snake and concern. syringes, but there were just kids, you know, shitting Puking in it shitting and, like, there. boogers and stuff. It was just, it's a disgusting place. <laughs> cesspool. What I like about Clown <laughs> is that it feels like those early 90s stuff, like the dentist or right. ice cream man. Yeah. Like, there's a very specific VHS horror aesthetic I think that movie captures it's pretty well. cheese volley, but, like... It's pretty good, though, like, the way that they show him turning into the clown. Yeah, the practical effects are pretty good. Professional. Yeah. It's got some good scares, and it's got a few... I wish it was a little heavier on the comedy. It does have its funny moments, Mm -hmm. though. It it treads that line nicely, I think. And the weird thing about the filmmaker... Basically, he got the movie funded because he made a fake trailer for Eli Roth's Clown. Uh, It was kind of, like, joking about Eli Roth's aesthetic and, like, made the trailer... And uh, basically wrote his name in the production, like, coming from Eli Roth. And Eli Roth thought it, was, thought it was so ballsy for someone to just, like, put his name on it without even asking him. <laughs> right. Uh, that he actually did fund the movie. Oh, that's uh, awesome. damn, that's awesome. And he's a Canadian filmmaker, and I think oh. his next movie is that Spider-Man movie that's coming out this summer. So he went from, like, this, like, cheap-ass horror clown. film clown to, cl- <laughs> to <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man Homecoming, one of the MCU properties. Damn, dude, that's moving up. I like that kind of ballsiness. That's not something you really hear about, like, since, Mm -mm. like, the 70s drive-in era where you just, like, falsely bill things just to, like, play up your, like... Hell yeah. And it works, apparently. Fantastic. Is there anything from last year that you wish you had seen by now? Moonlight. You haven't seen Moonlight yet? No. You really need to. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. I feel like such a dick. That's but how I felt when y'all were talking about Manchester by the Sea. I was like, like mm, I still haven't mm, seen mm, this. Mm. God damn it. I know. I'm just waiting for the right moment to watch right. it because I know it's going to be such a good movie and it's like, I don't want to have a bunch of crap going on. I want to be able to like sit, be in a good totally. moment yeah. and like maybe get takeout mm. and then watch it. You know? Yeah, it's it's like a... Chinese food. It makes sense that it won the Oscar in a way, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't seem like it should, because it's like a black queer story. That's not something that usually does win Oscars. Right. But it does have that, like, sort of timeless, like, production value to it. It's a good mix between, like, artsy meditation and, like, popcorn movie in a weird way, because it's got, like, a lot of good dramatic beats. And um, it also... It tells a that... good story on top of being, like, a beautifully shot art piece. And as that yeah. Oscar quality, it also, like, feels important. Mm-hmm. in a way right. which it is but important enough to win that was, i mean that was my number one movie yeah. from last year mm-hmm. all the actors are in top it. form like everyone puts in like really like great dramatic performances i did like i mean i saw the preview and then i watched the oscars and a lot of the clips they showed and i'm like wow this is great so i was really excited when they had that fake out because la la land fucking sucked <laughs> so i liked la la land uh, i haven't seen it yet it's very divisive that's another one that i like i've heard so much conflicting opinions about that i've kind of stay away from it i mean it might be better for the movie for you to wait till no one cares anymore like (laughs) it had a lot of like 
obsession. different arguments about it. Yeah. I feel like I'll like it in like 20 years. There's some movies that I hated, you know, a long time ago that I'm obsessed with now. So it might be that. It wasn't one of my favorites from last year, but mm-hmm. I liked it. I'm watching the Jacques Demy movies at uh, French Film Fest this year. I liked it even more. What were those called? Young Girls of Rochefort and Umbrellas of Cherbourg? Um, uh, I, I like both of them. La La Land borrows a lot from both of those movies in a way that I thought was interesting, kind of after the fact. Kind of makes me want to watch it again. I was, I was cool. okay with it. It kind of won me over. Like, the first 20 minutes, I was against it. <laughs> and, like, by the end, I was totally on its side. Gotcha. Um, my number one regret of just not catching up so far is Tony Erdman. It's, like, this three-hour German comedy about an adult woman and her father who's, like, a goofball and kind of, like, fucks up her, like, business life, her professional life. It's supposed to be one of the funniest comedies of the past decade. And I have not bothered to watch it yet, even though it's on Netflix right now. It's hard sometimes where there's just so much out there and it's like, I don't know, you don't want to, especially with like Netflix, you know, it's like, oh God, they're going to take it away. They're going to take it away. Mm -hmm. And what are they going to keep? I just wish they could tell us. I also think they're remaking Tony Erdman with um, an American version with Kristen Wiig and Jack Nicholson, supposedly. Uh, I fucking love Jack Nicholson. So I I feel like I definitely need to see it before it gets Americanized. Because I'll probably end up watching that either way because I like Kristen Wiig so much. And Jack Nicholson. It's probably going to be good. Maybe. Or who knows? Maybe I wouldn't even like the German version. Yeah. British Film Institute did a top 100 movies of the 21st century list last year. And that was in there. Like I think it was in like the top 20, which is insane because it just came out. So I feel like I need to see it. I know what I'm watching tonight. <laughs> Add it to the list. Brandon, you're giving me a lot of good movie ideas. Here. I think I'm out, though. I, I think wanna, that's the bottom of the conversation. Point, yeah. <laughs> I want to watch all this stuff, but my issue is I'm just going to go home and be like, I'm just going to watch The Wedding Singer again yeah. or something yeah. stupid like that. Why am I the way I am? Nothing wrong with watching something you already are familiar <laughs> with. I do it a lot. Or yeah. Zootopia. I'll just watch Zootopia one more time. <laughs> it's on Netflix. Well, next episode, we're going to be talking about a lot less movies. Brittany and I are only doing two films for the next time we talk, so... I feel like we're going to lose our minds a little bit. Yeah, what am I going to fill all my time with in the meantime? We're just going to know so much about sharks. Yeah, so the next episode we're doing is about uh, Jaws, and basically you watch the segments of Jaws on the day they occurred. So from June 28th (laughs) to July 8th, uh, you watch these sections of Jaws on the day they are, occur on the calendar. Um, Who came up with it? Brittany, was this your idea? Brandon found some. There's a podcast I listen to where a comedian named Howard <laughs> Kramer basically loves Jaws. And anytime someone says their favorite movie on the show, he plays a theme song uh, where he sings that Jaws is better. And then he like <laughs> goes into this long diatribe about how like Jaws is a better film than whatever they brought up. Um, oh my God. And he devised this plan called Jaws Real Time, where you watch Jaws, quote unquote, in real time. I'm really excited. That, I that really actually like Jaws. sounds fun. Because so, it's like you're living it, even though we're not really close to where it happened. <laughs> I think hard mode is watching it at the time of day it occurs. Like watching like... The ones that are in daylight and daylight and the scenes that are at night at nighttime. So we don't have to like watch it at that time of the day. No, God, no. Okay, because I'm just like, I'm we have jobs. Well, if I'm at work, <laughs> I'd be like, be I need to take a break and That's like go in the bathroom it. stall and just kind of like watch that. I think you all should seconds. do that. You all should find a way. <laughs> I can make it happen. <laughs> Maybe in 2020 when it actually lines up with the days of the year. Wow. I mean, the days of the week lineup whatever so next time we're only watching two movies and one of them we're watching over an 11 day period so (laughs) we're taking it light (laughs) but we'll see y'all then (laughs) bye everybody Bye. bye